Well, it is time to jump back into the story of David. Uh, we've been taking a few weeks here to focus on King David's life. This series is six weeks overall, uh, but to be honest, we could spend six months on this story, and we still wouldn't be able to cover everything. Uh, but we're trying to hit on some of the most significant events in David's life, and today we come to the story of David and Bathsheba. And some of you are very familiar with this story. Uh, it's got adultery and deceit and murder. Uh, it's like a lot of movies out there. Um, but unlike the first few weeks of this series, this time David is not the hero. He's the villain. And if you ask me, I think we could sum up this whole story with one question. And the question is this. What was he thinking and before we leave here today, we need to have a clear answer to that question. Not just to satisfy our curiosity, but so we can learn from David's bad decisions. And as we get into this story, I just want to say, there are some things in this story that I just don't like. It's disturbing. It bothers me to see a so-called Bible hero behaving this way. It also bothers me that this story is not just about David. All of us have the capacity to do terrible things. Because each one of us, we, we all have a sinful nature. We have this desire to go our own way, to, to break God's commandments. And because of that, this story should be humbling and sobering for us. At, at the same time, though, this story is also very hopeful. And uh, if you allow God to speak to you as we look into his word today, you have an opportunity to walk away from here a different person. You really do. So let's not waste any time. Uh, first, where are we in David's life? Well, I'll give you a quick snapshot. Last week, we saw that God had appointed David as a new king of Israel. He was going to succeed Saul, who had been the first king of Israel. And early on, Saul was a fairly decent king, but over time, he decided to turn away from God, and he just crashed and burned. And now his life is a tragic cautionary tale. So what happened between last week and this week? A lot, actually. Uh, first, David is crowned as the second king of Israel, and, and then once his reign begins, it's just one success after another. Uh, he defeats the Philistines in two major battles. He frees the city of Jerusalem from a people known as the Jebusites, and he makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel, which amazingly is still the case today. But uh, David also continued to make a name for himself. Not just as a strong general and warrior, but also as a gifted poet and musician. He, he's just an all-around great guy, living a great life. But we know that doesn't last. The David bandwagon comes to a screeching halt in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So let's take a look at this. It's the biggest scandal in David's life. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Follow along with me. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So we've already got some issues here, don't we? David is the king, and back in those days, the king is supposed to lead his army personally. David has a job to do, and for whatever reason, when the army goes off to war, David decides to sit this one out. He's like, you know, I have fought many battles And this time, I'm going to let them fight for me. But then where does that leave David? It leaves him at home with lots of time on his hands and no real uh, sense of purpose. And as you might guess, that's not a good thing. It's, It's not a good thing for a powerful king to just hang out. And, you know, that's not good for anyone to sit around with nothing productive to do. That, that leads to trouble. And for David, trouble comes when he spies on a particular woman, a woman he finds very attractive, very desirable. Now, in the Bible, it's clear that David had a weakness for women. Eventually, David has at least eight wives. And it is true that polygamy was a common practice in the ancient world, but God did not approve of that practice. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God's law said, The king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. So that's pretty clear, but David seemed to ignore that little law. And when a man like David starts collecting women, how many does it take for him to say, enough? Well, the answer to that question is just one more. And... You know, it's not different for us, really. Whenever we try to find contentment or fulfillment in things of this world, whether that's money or sex or material things, we're never really satisfied, are we? You can try to find happiness with a new car or a new house or a new relationship, But those things don't lead to contentment because true contentment only comes from God. And if you pursue anything else in place of Him, against His will, you're headed for heartbreak. So back to David. Let's read the next verse. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It says, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Do you know what this is right here? This is a major life intersection. David has a big decision in front of him, and whatever whatever path he chooses, it's going to have a profound impact on his life. Now, the right decision would have been what? To look away, to, to go back inside, to get that image out of his mind. And the wrong decision would be what? To keep looking. To get that engine running. To let your imagination get carried away. And to focus on this woman as an object of desire. So what did David choose? We see it in the next verse. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, 
She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, David has already driven through a couple of barricades here, but, but now he has one more chance. He gets one final warning that he's about to do something evil. That messenger said, this woman is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And do you know who Uriah was? Years before this, Uriah had been one of David's mighty men. And, and those mighty men stood by David. They fought alongside him. They defended him when King Saul was out trying to kill him. So here's the picture. First, you have Bathsheba, an innocent woman. She's not looking for trouble. And then you have Uriah, a man who not only defended David in the past, he is also out there fighting for David right now. And if David had been thinking straight, this news would have been like cold water splashed in his face. And let me pause for a second and say this. There may be someone listening right now, and you are right now considering a bad decision. You're, you're thinking about doing something that you know is wrong. You're, you're stepping up to the edge of the cliff, but you haven't jumped off yet. And if that's you, please consider something. Could it be that God is trying to get your attention right now? Could it be that God wants to use this sermon to splash cold water in your face? Could it be that he's trying to protect you and others around you from deep hurt? If that's you, make the right decision. But here, David, he's not interested in that. He's not thinking straight. He's not listening to God. He's completely focused on what he wants in the moment. And the next verse says, Then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. And then she went back home. It's one of the most notorious sins in the Bible. David gives in to temptation, and he seems to get away with it. That's what he thought. But uh, it doesn't take long before David hears from Bathsheba again. Three little words. I am pregnant. David is stunned, and he starts thinking, okay, okay, I'm the king. I can handle this. I have power. I, I, can, I can solve this problem. And so David has an idea. He calls Uriah back from the war, and he tells Uriah, go on leave. Go home and enjoy your wife. See, that way, everyone could assume that Uriah is the father of this baby. But there's a problem. Uriah is a man of honor. He says, I can't go back. I, I, I can't enjoy my wife and enjoy the comforts of home while my fellow soldiers are out there on the battlefield. I'm not going to do that. Uriah just won't play along. So David takes things to another level. He goes straight for murder. David sends Uriah back to the battle. And he also sends a message to his general. And the message says, put Uriah on the front lines, out where the fighting is fiercest, and then pull back the army and let Uriah die. 
the general obeys those orders, and Uriah dies. And now David can do whatever he wants, right? It says, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So the cover-up worked, right? Well, no. A cover-up never truly works because God always knows, even our best-kept secrets. Look at the next few words. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that is one of the great understatements in the Bible. Uh, But now, it's time to deal with our big question. What was he thinking? He's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. And how could a man like that do something so terrible? Well, we need to pay close attention here because David's mind was working a lot like our minds tend to work. And you don't have to be a murderer or an adulterer to see the parallels and the similarities. So let's be humble and let's listen to God as we move forward. I want to look at three things that were happening in David's mind as he was making these decisions. First, David minimized sin. And he did that in at least two ways. First, he minimized his own weakness in the face of temptation. You remember where he was? David was in the palace, and he was by himself, and he went up on the roof in the evening. Now, he knew what he might see from up there, no doubt about that. But he's not worried. He's thinking, I'm not hurting anybody, and I won't let things get out of hand. I've got this under control. But David was in dangerous territory, and he was weak, and he gave in to temptation. He ran headlong into sin. And as he crossed that line, David also minimized the seriousness of his actions. He just wanted what he wanted, and he didn't stop to consider the long-term consequences of his sin. As we'll see later, the consequences are absolutely devastating. So let's not make this same mistake. Don't put yourself in a place of temptation and think you'll be strong enough. We're not as strong as we think we are. And don't minimize the seriousness of sin. Uh, Even a sin that seems small can come at a terrible price. But there is another thought process in David's mind. David also rationalized his sin. And you know what I mean by that? David was acting like a villain, but he still wanted to think of himself as a good guy. And this is a common practice. If you imagine your life as a movie, you want to think of yourself as the protagonist. Like, yeah, I'm the sympathetic character in this story. Everybody should be pulling for me. We don't want to think of ourselves as the villain And we perform all kinds of mental acrobatics in the attempt to preserve our moral superiority. And think about how that might have worked with David. When Uriah came back from the the battle, David didn't pick up a sword and murder him directly with his own hand. What did he do? He let the enemy army do the work for him. And I could picture him saying, hey, Uriah could have easily died in that battle anyway, so you can't really call this murder. We will do almost anything to make ourselves the good guy in the story. But rationalization is always dishonest by nature. 
And a lot of times, we're not just trying to convince ourselves. We're like David. He tried to uh, convince others that he was the good guy. That's why he worked so hard to cover up his sin. He was trying to protect his image. He was trying to hold on to his status and position as king. He wanted that respect. He wanted to keep that power. And that takes us to the last thought process that I'll mention here. David tried to manage his sin. And many of us have tried this, right? The tactic of sin management. That's when you say, yes, I know about this thing in my life that displeases God, but I've got it under control. I can manipulate the situation and get away with it. Now, David was a king, and if anybody could control a situation, it would be a king, right? Because he can uh, make orders and issue decrees. He has whole armies at his disposal. But even with all his authority, David found out that he was not in control at all. And the truth is, it, it doesn't matter whether it's David or you or me. There's no way to win at the game of sin management. Sooner or later, God will deal with our sin. That's exactly what happens to David. In the next chapter, we see an encounter between David and a prophet named Nathan. And I believe we could sum up this chapter of the story with one statement. And the statement is, you are the man. Now, Today, when you hear that phrase, uh, a lot of times it's a positive thing. But here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, not so much. Uh, now, going back to the story, after David's great sin, a year goes by. And it seems like David has escaped the consequences of his actions. But then an old friend shows up, this prophet, Nathan. And Nathan has a message from God. And he shares that message in the form of a story. It's a parable, a parable about a rich man. This, this man has tons of money and property and animals, all kinds of stuff. But then nearby, there was a poor man. This poor man worked hard trying to support his family. And his prized possession was a cute little lamb. This, this lamb was a beloved pet for him and his whole family. It even drank from the man's cup. But one day, this rich man had company come over. And instead of killing one of his own animals to feed the guests, he goes over to the poor man's house and takes that little lamb and slaughters it. And that is Nathan's story. It's just a parable. It's just fiction. But it was pretty dramatic. And how do you think David would react to this story? Well, we see his reaction in 2 Samuel 12, 5. David burned with anger against the rich man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Huh. Isn't that interesting? All of a sudden, David is talking like he's some great moral authority. He is full of righteous indignation. And he wants to see this wrongdoer pay for his crime. But we know what David's doing, right? He's still rationalizing. He's still trying to think of himself as the good guy. And that's why he comes down so hard on this lamb killer. 
David is trying to compensate for his own sin by being self-righteous, by being judgmental towards somebody else. But that smoke screen is about to clear out. Nathan has been waiting for this moment. Look at what happens right after David condemns the rich man. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And that's not like, David, you are the man. (laughs) No, it's, David, you are this rich man. Boom. As it turns out, it, it really wasn't a parable after all. Nathan says to David, he says, David, your wealth, your power, those were gifts from God. And he would have been happy to bless you even more. But instead of being grateful and content and obedient, you took Uriah's wife, his treasured wife, and then you had him killed. And now, David, you will face the consequences. In the coming years, your family will suffer. There will be violence and conflict in your home. Now, right here, this is the turning point of the story. David has a very serious decision to make, and he has a couple of options. Option number one, David could have hardened his heart to sin. And you know, some people do exactly that. When they're faced with the reality of their sin, they decide, I just don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And a person in that position, over time, their conscience gets worn down to the point where it doesn't even function anymore. And that person's heart becomes hard and cold. And unless a miracle happens, that person is literally headed for hell. But David did not choose that option. Instead, David realized the depths of his sin, and he turned to God in repentance. He finally realized, I'm not the good guy. I'm not the hero. I'm the villain. Nathan's story got through to him. And by the way, there's a lesson here for anyone who's trying to help a person who's caught up in sin. Did you notice? Nathan did not open with that line, you are the man. He he didn't storm into the room and say, David, you sinner, here's a list of all the things you've done to bring down the wrath of God. No, Nathan slowed down and he told a story. And why, why would he do that? Well, this was for David's benefit. God was giving David every opportunity to turn around, turn away from sin, and turn to God. And David takes that opportunity. Fortunately, we know exactly what he's thinking in this part of the story. He recorded his thoughts in Psalm 51. And I want to read a few verses of that psalm. David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then down in verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So look at those words. Do you think David is expressing genuine remorse? As far as I can tell, he is. And do you think David has a sincere desire to truly change and fully devote his heart to God once again? Based on what we read here, I'd say the answer is yes. But hold on a second. Why would a God of justice be willing to forgive David? Why would he be willing to restore him to a place of purity and salvation? How is that fair? How is that just? Well, this is one of the most shocking parts of this story. God's grace, God's mercy is available even in the face of great sin. There's a reason it's called amazing grace. And if you feel like God's grace is unfair in this case, I get it. Uh, You see, grace doesn't operate by our normal understanding of fairness. Uh, Take King Saul, for example. If you go back and see why Saul was rejected by God, you might think, wow, uh, what Saul did doesn't seem as bad as what David did. I think you can make a case for that. But when we make those comparisons, we're thinking about it all wrong. All of us have sinned against God. And it's not the level of our sin or the level of our righteousness that will determine whether or not we are accepted or rejected by God. So, what is the determining factor? Why why was David accepted in the end and Saul was rejected? The difference is the response. In the end, Saul would not humble himself and come clean before God. Saul got defensive before God, and David got honest. David confessed his sin before God. At the end of Psalm 51, David says to God, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So there's the difference between David and Saul. It's the response. A broken spirit. A broken heart. Sincere remorse over the depth of his sin and true surrender to God. And how does God respond to that? Well, back in 2 Samuel 12, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then check this out. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin." You are not going to die. And aren't you thankful that God takes that approach? Aren't you thankful that God is not up in heaven with an itchy finger over a smite button? Like, ha, smite you, and then you, and then you. No, he's not like that. God does not want anyone to be destroyed by their own sin because he loves each one of us. God loves messy people. He loves annoying people. He loves sinful people. He loves me. And he loves you. And if at all possible, he wants to help you come to the conclusion that you need to turn away from your sin and turn to him. 
Romans chapter 2 tells us that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is amazing. It's amazing that he's willing to save and restore. But we can't leave this story just yet. You see, it's, it's possible for someone to walk away from this story with the wrong conclusion. Someone might say, cool, since David got off the hook, I could get away with all kinds of stuff. And I want to close by rejecting that mindset in the strongest way I know how to do. We need to understand that, yes, forgiveness is possible, but forgiveness does not erase the consequences of sin. Think about it. The Lord removed David's sin, but Uriah, he was still dead. That didn't change. There were other consequences as well. Remember what Nathan said? He said that David's sin would bring chaos and calamity and tragedy into his home. And that's exactly what happened. That baby born to David and Bathsheba got sick and died. And then David's other kids go completely off the rails. He's absolutely heartbroken by all the wreckage in his family. So let's remember the consequences of sin. Yes, forgiveness is possible, but that doesn't erase many of the consequences. And there's one more reason why we should never abuse God's grace or take it for granted. We need to understand that God's grace is available only because Jesus paid a terrible price on our behalf. The, the, the only reason David or you or me or anyone else has the chance to be forgiven is because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin when he went to the cross. Jesus chose to die in your place because he loves you. And that's a beautiful thing. And we can never take that sacrifice for granted. We can never take God's grace for granted. The only appropriate response to God's grace is love and gratitude. And that love for God, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, when we truly love God, we will surrender to the work of His Spirit, killing sin and becoming more like Jesus. If you're not serious about fighting temptation and killing off sin, probably a good idea to question whether or not you've really given your life to Jesus. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now make no mistake, you can't kill off your own sin just by trying hard. See, there's a partnership in this verse. It is possible to put our sin to death, but we can only do that by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So what does that look like in practical terms on a daily basis? Do you, do you just say, God, this is all on you. If I'm ever going to resist temptation, you got to do this for me. No, it's not like that. Remember, there's a partnership here. The Holy Spirit will provide the power, but we have to make decisions and this is where we can learn from David. We can learn not to minimize or rationalize our sin or try to manage it. 
We can realize the depth of our sin and turn to God in humility and repentance. And we can also connect with other people in the same way that David connected with Nathan. Do you have somebody like Nathan in your life? Someone to encourage you and challenge you and hold you accountable? This morning, I have a stack of accountability cards with me. Now, this particular stack of cards are written specifically for men. Uh, There's a list of questions here that you can go over with an accountability partner. One question asks if you are spending consistent time with God one-on-one in Bible study and prayer. Another one asks how you're doing in the fight against lust. There are several others. Uh, Are you using your spiritual gifts and abilities as you should be? Uh, You know, Having conversations like this will help you grow and become more like Jesus. And if you are a man who needs that kind of encouragement and accountability, I want to invite you to show up this coming Wednesday at 6.30 a.m. at Panera in Cold Spring. There's a group of guys that are going to meet there. It's three days from now. It's a brand new men's Bible study that's starting just for the summer. There's also an opportunity for women. Uh, You can come right here to the Life Center on Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m. It's two days from now. And if you already have a relationship like this and and you'd like one of these cards, come come see me after service. I'll, I'll be glad to get you one. Or if you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, or reconnect with Jesus. We'd love to help you do that. Let's not waste the story of David. Let's allow God to use this story to change us and shape us into who he wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story. It's difficult in some ways, but I know there are times in our lives where we need to hear this. We need to hear about the seriousness of sin, and we need to hear about the hope of your grace and your love. So Lord, whatever step it is that we need to take today, I pray that you'll help us to do that, that you'll give us the power, but that we will make the decision. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.